0: You're listening to The 66 Podcast, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time, and today we are in Jeremiah. We're going to be mostly in chapter 36 today, a really uh, interesting story about King Jehoiakim, and we'll remind you who that guy is. I know there's a lot of guys with a name that sounds like that that we've been talking about since our first episode, but today we're excited. Uh, As always, we have... Uh, I'm Andrew Kingsley with Drew Kaiser, but today we've got uh, an asteroid legend here with us. In the flesh, Mr. Barton Kaiser. Yeah, say say something to the
1: audience, Barton. <laughs> Preferably in English. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hello. Thanks for the invite. And I heard about this podcast a couple of times. i had been listening to it some, and... I think it's a really cool idea. I, I don't know all about it. I think I do understand that it's in the Bible school program somehow. No. And Thanks no. for preparing for it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Thanks for preparing me. <laughs>
2: well, that's true. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> well, what we but, do is okay. we go through this. Let,
0: uh, I won't say anything. Okay. I just... Yeah, I'm just going to hog all the time here at the beginning because I'm not going to have anything useful to say later. Um, what we do is, we first we do about a 15 minute segment where we just read through the text for the episode And today that's going to be chapter 36, a little bit of chapter 25 We read through it, we outline it, then we take a break and We come back and we go a little bit deeper into a few things um, that we thought were interesting Or maybe um, a few difficult points of the passage We'll kind of wrestle with those for Another 15 to 20 minutes, and then we'll take another break, and then we'll come back at the end and make application from the text, uh, things that we can take away with us uh, for the week or for the day or uh, whatever the case may be. But today, uh, Drew's for got us minute. lined up. For, for the, the second.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> However long. It... Working your way down. Yeah. Uh, what? What these two chapters are about, it will have some really good practical applications oh, yeah. because what what we're looking at here is uh preaching and the word and the words effect on the audience uh first I want to explain why we're tying these two chapters together you know Jeremiah is fragmented and we may see why today maybe there's a theory about that. But it is it is really fragmented, and we've done our best to find some way to outline it, which is, as a reminder to our audience, to kind of trace the narrative, the historical narrative, throughout mm-hmm. the book, and let that lead us. And uh, some of the prophecies we just splice in here and there the best we can. But uh, you'll notice chapter 25, verse 1, begins, The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. And the clue that we had was at the beginning of chapter thirty-six, that it came about in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. So it was kind of like last week we put the two sections of the prophecy together based on the fact that it was early in the reign of Jehoiakim right. and decided that that sanctuary sermon in chapter seven through eleven fit in with Uh, the latter part of Jeremiah. Well, in the same way, we've got probably a sermon in chapter 25 or a text that was delivered to Jehoiakim, and the story of that is told in chapter 36. And we're going to focus on chapter 36, frankly, because people are more interested in a story than in a a text. But uh, the text is nothing new, is another reason. You know, it's the same message that we've been hearing from episode 1, which is, turn, repent, and you you may be saved. Otherwise, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is coming to destroy you. Now, I'm going to do all our reading from chapter 36, except for this one other theme. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 25. Very important prediction here. Uh, that I don't think he gives elsewhere in the book of Jeremiah. He says, this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror. He's talking about Judah. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So, this goes back to, I believe, and I should have looked it up, but in Leviticus, there is a prediction of captivity. And uh, it said that the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. And maybe that's kind of where this is based on, but the figure of the, the number given for captivity is 70 years. And uh, it's interesting that Daniel is reading this in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. Just another reminder that Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel were uh, contemporaries with one another. And Daniel said he had been reading Jeremiah and saw that the time of his captivity would be 70 years. And he was marking, it was like he had one of those calendars in his mm-hmm. prison cell or whatever, and he was putting X's through, you know, the, the dates. That's, mm. You know, not really, but that's, that's the way I read it, is Daniel was digging through, and he's like, you know, 70 years, and I'm an old man. I've been in here about that length of time. Uh, we're going to go home soon, or my people are going home soon. I don't know if Daniel ever really made it personally. Very important prediction because... It shows the inspiration of the Bible and the fact that it came to pass. Roughly 606, B. we're talking about the year 605 B.C., and they go home in 536 B.C. That's when Cyrus, king of Persia, sends them home. And uh, 605 is a pivotal year here, the fourth year of Jehoiakim, because in this year, Uh, Nebuchadnezzar defeats Egypt and Assyria at Carchemish and asserts his dominance. I mean, now he is the big dog in the land. And nobody doubts that anymore. And it is also the first year that some destruction takes place and he claims authority over Judah. So anyway, that brings us to chapter 36 which is dated, as I said, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. What you see here is this scroll of Jeremiah that's red. And it's the Word of God. And as I said, there are all kinds of practical applications here. But what you're going to see emphasized here is the impact that the Word has upon those who hear it. And so that's how we're going to outline the reading today, is the impact upon the listeners of the Word of God. And the first... Uh, impact you see is its impact upon Jeremiah look at verse 1 it came about in the fourth year of Jehoiakim the son of Josiah king of Judah that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations from the day I first spoke to you from the days of Josiah even to this day Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way and I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. You see again the mercy of God in sending this, this word because what he really wants is for them to repent so that he can save them. And of course we know that's that's not what's going to happen. Secondly, we see this interesting character that we've referred to but haven't seen him much yet in the action of the book. Baruch, mm-hmm. am I saying that right? Andrews are a
0: resident Hebrew scholar. Oh he, yeah, he <laughs> took
2: <laughs> Hebrew. <laughs> yeah, that does not make me Baruch. Angry Is it Baruch? The,
0: I think that's exactly how. I mean, I think that's as close as you can get to an actual ancient Hebrew saying it.
2: Baruch. Yeah, I'm going to just say yeah. Baruch. How do you say it in good. Spanish? Baruch. Oh, okay. So, I was, I was doing I was doing the Spanish, not the Hebrew. Thank you, Baruch. Baruch. Um, okay, so, verse 4, Jeremiah called... We'll see the impact of the word on Baruch. Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah. And Baruch wrote at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him on a scroll. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am restricted... I cannot go into the house of the Lord. So there's been a, a ban on Jeremiah, which I find, you know, sad. And at the same time, there's, I don't know, I, is this wrong? I see a little comedy in this, you know. Pre, a preacher who has just irritated the people to the point where he's not allowed into yeah. his church building anymore. Yeah. kind well, of. Well, it
0: doesn't <laughs> surprise me considering, you know, the message he's been bringing the whole time.
2: It has not been a popular message. No. Yeah, So he says to Baruch, You go and read from the scroll which you have written at my dictation the words of the Lord to the people in the Lord's house on a fast day. And also you shall read them read them to all the people of Judah who come from their cities. And, Baruch, and I'm going to skip down to verse 8. Baruch the son of Neriah did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading from the book, the words of the Lord... In the Lord's house, so you see the impact upon Baruch. He's very obedient. Takes some risks to his own life. Next, we're going to see these officials again. Now, do you remember? Was it last week when certain officials pretty much saved Jeremiah's life? Right Uh, after
0: the temple sermon.
2: Right after he gave the temple sermon, uh, he was he was um, brought up on charges and uh, was about to be executed. And it was the prophets and the priests that wanted to put him to death. Mm -hmm. And the officials remembered Micah and Mm -hmm. how his words came to pass and saved his life. And so here again, we see the officials, and uh, we're going to see the impact the Word makes upon them. And in a word, the impact is fear, one of fear. Look down at verse 16. It came about when they heard all the words, they turned in fear to one another and said to Baruch, we will surely report all these words to the king. That doesn't seem to be an antagonistic reaction to me. It seems, you know, neutral or even positive, you know, they they were afraid of it. They believed it, in other words. And they asked Baruch, tell us please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? And I love how they don't say the word Jeremiah here. I don't know. I There's some drama to that. Was it him? Mm. You came from him, didn't you? And then Beirut said, He dictated all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Just a sidebar. This is the only place the word translated ink is found in the whole Old Testament. I don't know what that means, but mm. that's just an interesting thing. Since we're talking about the word... And we'll be talking, I think, in the think uh, section and the apply section about inspiration, how the word is written and what good that is. So this is the written word. So verse 19 says, The official said to Beirut, Go hide yourself, you and Jeremiah, and do not let anyone know where you are. That's the impact upon the officials. Now we get to the fun part, the impact upon the king, upon Jehoiakim. Uh, In verse 22, he's sitting... In the winter house, like his winter palace. In the ninth month, with the fire burning in the fire pot before him. And it came about when Jehudai had read three or four columns. It's on a scroll. And they would write it in columns to make it easier to read. And also to get more text on the page. Because whatever material this was written upon was very rare, hard to get. And so uh, this is a valuable medium that is being used here. Whenever he read three or four columns, the king cut it with a scribe's knife or a penknife and threw it into the fire that was in the firepot until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the firepot. Yet the king and all his servants who heard all these words were not afraid, nor did they rend their garments. Even though Elnathan and Deliah and Gam- Gamariah, these are the officials that I didn't read the part where they're named, but they're mentioned uh, in verse 11. Um, in other places, these are the officials. Uh, even though these guys entreated the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, Jeramiel, the king's son, Sarai, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah the son of Abdiel to seize Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord... Hid them. So you have the officials hiding them, and now the Lord Himself hides them. So the impact of Jehoiakim upon the, the Word of God is, well, it, it didn't impact him in the way that it should have. And we ra- wrap this up with the impact of the Word upon the Lord. And verse 27 says, The Word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the scroll, and the words which Baruch had written at the dictation of Jeremiah, saying, Take again another scroll. And write on it all the former words that were on the first scroll which Jehoiakim king of Judah burned. And then verse 32 tells us that he took another scroll, gave it to Baruch the son of Neriah the scribe, and he wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim king of Judah had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. So if Jehoiakim didn't like what was on the first scroll... He really didn't like the second scroll because it had more on it than the first scroll. All of his all of his antagonism towards the word of God was futile. Let's, uh, let's go back through this now and see, you know, if there's anything to really think more deeply about, because there was a lot here, and uh, we cruised through it pretty quickly. Uh, Andrew, you were talking about something that you found interesting.
0: Yeah, it's the, I guess, the amount of time that elapses between the word coming to Jeremiah and then the scroll being written. You know, we saw in verse 1 that it's the fourth year of Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim, you know, we remember as Josiah's second son to start ruling. The first one was just there for three months, and then Jehoiakim got put in. He reigns for quite a while. Um, So, just to kind of get our minds straight on where we are. But the fourth year of him, when he starts ruling, is when the word comes to Jeremiah. Then, down in verse 9, the fifth year is when the scroll is finished, in the ninth month, in the fifth year. So it's at least a nine-month undertaking for mm-hmm. uh, the scroll to be written. So there's, I don't, you know, well, when I read through this the first time, I'm thinking, you know, he stands up, he reads it in front of everybody, it's short and sweet, you know, maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes, however long, you know, we're used to a sermon. But there's no telling how long... The scroll was, or how long it took him to read it. You know, if it took that long, and it said, um, let's see, verse 2 Write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations. So apparently, it can't be much, or if any, longer than the prophecy that we read in Jeremiah. It sounds, that's assuming we have the full work of prophecy of Jeremiah here in this book. But there's probably... I mean, this took at least nine months. There's a lot of content. Well, that
2: is if you assume that at the moment he was commanded to dictate and copy, in Beirut's case, mm-hmm. that they started writing without a break for nine months. Yeah, I mean, there had to have been some time inserted there for Beirut to muster the courage to do this. Yeah, And there may have been... I mean, could... Could we not conceive of there being a little procrastination here on Bayrick's part? Because if I were in his position, I would definitely have been coming up with like, well, you know, I can't, I can't do this until my laundry is done because I'm going to get killed, and I don't want my wife to get stuck with all this laundry, and I've got to, i got to finish plowing the field, and you know, we'll get, and then you know, and then I'll get over there and read this thing. I, I don't know.
1: I it just doesn't can't really say
0: because do I never procrastinate. Right. With anything.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but along with that, you know, if he had, if he had written it, um, did he have it in his possession possession for a long time? And was that dangerous for him to have something like that uh, speaking out against um, the nations? Um, and you know, that must have been a, a scary situation for him. You know, thinking about him holding on to this document that. Could like you said, drew take his own life,
2: yeah, that's true. It's kind of like a hot potato, yeah, so maybe it did take that long yeah, um now I w- you know this reminded me I read somewhere that a lot of people believe that what we have as the book of Jeremiah is the second scroll, and uh so what we have is, would actually be longer than the first one. Because right. he says in the very last verse that many similar words were added. So I you know, nobody knows if, mm-hmm. if you know this is I, I I doubt that it had like the story that you know, like for example the, the events that occur after this. Yeah. You know, I I don't know if that would have been on that scroll that's mentioned in verse uh what is it, thirty two. But, you know, it's interesting. There, we definitely have portions of that scroll in here, if not the scroll in its entirety, plus yeah. the stories. Now, I mentioned that there may be this may be the explanation why Jeremiah is so fragmented. Um, you think about, I, I know it's happened to me back, this kind of dates me a little. Andrew's probably never had this experience, but have you ever worked on a research paper and it's due like the next day? Mm-hmm. And um, you didn't save it. See, in the old days, Andrew, we had to save stuff. <laughs> Nowadays, if you're using Google Docs or whatever, it just automatically saves, yeah. and you don't have to worry about it. But you did. You did I even remember using floppy drives, mm-hmm. and you know, you gotta you gotta save it every few minutes. Oh, I used floppy drives. And and uh, oh, like you did? Okay. Fifth grade. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. But you know, you could. I've lost like. 10 page papers mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. the the second time around it's just not as not as well organized you know and yeah. of course we have to be careful we're talking about inspiration here so this is exactly what God wanted us to have but I also know that inspiration does not restrict the style of the writer the personality kind of the circumstances the type of literature for example, you know, when Paul was in prison he wrote letters and they read like letters. Well this is a scroll written under duress. Mm-hmm. So it reads that way. It's fragmented perhaps because it was written under duress. It had to be rewritten. And you know, maybe the first one was a little or organized a little differently. And uh you know, I think the image of Jehoiakim cutting it with a penknife is kind of representative of the, the the form of the form of Jeremiah. And I also think the form is kind of part of the message. Poetry will do this a lot where, you know, form is really important to the message of the of the poem. Not just the words and their meanings, but the structure of the poem I think the structure of the book of Jeremiah where you get some here and some there and it's not on the timeline kind of explains Jeremiah's emotional state that he was in. And and I think it's interesting to think about it that way. I don't, I'm not saying it was intentional. Like Jeremiah sat down and said, All right, Baruch, I want you to write this, you know, I want you to put the last part of this first and the first part of it last so that the form can, uh, you know... Show my readers how complicated my life is. I, I don't think that was intentional, but I think it does have that effect. You read it, and it and it feels that way to me, anyway.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. I don't think reading through Jeremiah will make anybody. I don't think when we get done with this uh, book, anybody's going to sit back and say, "Oh, well, that was a simple, nice, neat story." You know, right. it is complicated. Like Ruth, you
2: know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is just like every word is in its right place. Mm -hmm. Um, This is not a book like that. Right. And it's not due to incompetence or anything
0: like that. It's just, you know, he was under duress. Um, Well, and that's kind of typical with prophets, too, isn't it? I mean, I don't know that. I mean, maybe some of the shorter ones you can say are nice and neat, but I know with Isaiah. Yeah, Isaiah is the the same same way. It was difficult bouncing back and forth and. Where does this section of prophecy go and all this kind of stuff? The same, same kind of layout as Jeremiah. Prophecy is kind of like collections.
2: A collection of sermons, maybe. Yeah. Um, it's not meant to be like you know, the, the historical books of the Bible. Right. Um, you want to move on to something else? Uh, in chapter 25, we haven't spent a whole lot of time in chapter 25, and I wanted to bring up this a very interesting image to me, and um, I don't know how far to take it, but this is the clearest extrapolation of the image that that is in the Bible, and that is the image of the cup as an image for God's wrath. I skipped over this in the reading, um, but if you look at verse 15, the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, "Take from my hand." this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. And then verse 27, he says, Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? Really clear that the cup is God's wrath. And, you know, there's even this idea of them refusing the cup and... being forced to drink it to the point of staggering drunk mm-hmm. and you go over to the New Testament and it just reminds me of, of a few things mm-hmm. like um, James and John going to Jesus requesting to sit on his right hand and on his left when he comes into his kingdom and do you remember what Jesus asked them are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink mm-hmm. and uh, they said we are and he said you will drink the cup that I drink Um, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to grant. Um, We know that he's talking there about his death and uh, the sacrifices that he has to make. And then I also think about the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This was on his mind, the cup of God's wrath over sin. That's what he was talking about. Um, and he may have been thinking about these very words, mm-hmm. not just some general cup.
1: And to the to the Jews there, they would have, I imagine they would have recalled immediately this prophecy in Jeremiah 25. Being Jews yeah. and understanding the... Mm-hmm. They, they heard it a lot. They the understood that. And so, you know, us in, in this century reading uh, Garden of Gethsemane or, or the passage that you mentioned earlier with James and John, you know, we we have to figure that out. But, I always imagine when Jesus is talking to a group of Jews, He's always alluding to something that they already understand or or their history or something and and they they have we have the luxury or we have the advantage of understanding God's message to its fullest the same way they did two thousand years ago, but at the same time, I think we sometimes forget that they were Jews. And Jesus was speaking to Jews in their language, uh, in which included their idioms and yeah, their symbols exactly. and all of that. Yeah.
2: <clears throat> Let me. I got a question for you guys, and I really don't know the answer to this question. But when when we take the Lord's Supper, particularly the fruit of the vine, is it appropriate for us to say turn over to this passage, or just to reflect on it? as part of what is included in the cup that we drink. You know, because in Matthew 26, 26 and following, when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, the the fruit of the vine is interesting. He refers to it in an interesting way. Um, He doesn't say, drink this juice or drink the fruit of the vine. But he says, let me get to it so I can say it exactly the way it is. Uh, Verse 27, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to all of them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Um. So there are two things, one on both sides of this argument. I, and I, I guess I'm asking, was he including this imagery in the in the Lord's Supper? On the side that he was, you have the fact that he refers to it as the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So blood shed in judgment of sin so that others can be forgiven. But then he says he's not going to drink it well, he says he's not going to drink it new with them until he's in his father's kingdom, and of course he will drink the cup of divine wrath on the cross, which occurs between this time. So I don't, I don't know, you know, if it was in, intended to include this, this symbol. But it was such a, I mean, I'm just, I just looked at one instance of it in Jeremiah. It's throughout the prophets in the Old Testament.
0: Right. Um, I, Zephan, I don't know, what do y'all think? Cup. I think uh, 1 Corinthians 11 kind of helps me out with it where Paul's talking about um, the Lord's Supper and what it's supposed to be. Um, you know, they're having problems with the Lord's Supper in Corinth and he says to them when he starts talking about the cup in verse 25 in the same way he took the cup after supper saying, this is the, this is the cup, or this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So, I don't think there's anything wrong with us considering, you know, the cup of, you know, of wrath and relating it to Jeremiah's day and then, you know, in our minds of Jesus' sacrifice and taking, you know, the punishment for sin for us. I think it's good for us to be mindful of that. But at the same time, I think we need to think about this new covenant as well. Uh, you know, that Paul mentions Jesus or quotes Jesus here saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So I think there's a part, you know, where we need to be very uh, mindful of, you know, the the great, I guess, for lack of a better word, I guess, punishment um, mm-hmm. that he had to endure. But then also the fact that he came out on the other side of that, you know, and won over sin and won over yes. death. And so that's kind of what, you know, when I read that, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You know, I think there's the idea of the, the, I guess, the negative part, the punishment, but also, you know, to me, the positive is, you know, outweighs it because of the, you know, not I'm not trying to disregard any of the, you know, any of the... Uh, punishment that he would have taken for our sin but the victory that he won over death and over sin and you know over satan i think is you know every time we take the lord's supper that's what i'm left with thinking about yes yeah. you know the hope yeah. that we have with this new covenant but i do think it's good to be mindful of if you're not mindful of the wrath i guess it it doesn't mean as much the no i know, mean the yeah, if have, there's no
2: wrath much. of god then the the cross was meaningless yeah so that's the problem with people saying God is love and nothing else. Uh, love involves wrath; it has to. Or there's nothing. The sending Jesus to the cross was a senseless, murderous, wicked thing to do right. because it had no it had no meaning, or or it was a suicidal thing that Jesus did, or it was a you know. It, you totally change the meaning if you take out divine wrath. So it's definitely in the cross. Uh, and this may be something you know our listeners can think about as long as, like you say, Andrew, you, you put it in the right perspective. This isn't wrath with no light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, This is wrath satisfied. Somebody drank the cup who could drink the cup sufficiently. You know, these... When he drank the cup and I'm really stretching the metaphor there but in Jeremiah they drink the cup and they they're drunk and they stagger and they're mm-hmm. vomiting when Jesus drank the cup he said it is finished he drank mm-hmm. it down there's another I wish I could remember which prophet it was but they're told to drink it down to the dregs he drank mm-hmm. it down to the dregs and he, he 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 drank every last drop of it so that those who put their trust in him and depend on him are able to stand before God in judgment
1: without any fear? Well, it, if, if we do have um, at least the liberty to, to talk about to tie these two ideas together you know in the Bible, it, it's consistent with what always happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament you have um, if there is a connection between the two, you always have this feeling of things being left undone, you know God's yeah, punishment, God's law. Um, transgression against the law and so that's God having uh, the nations drink the cup, you know mm-hmm. they drink the cup of punishment. Whereas in the New Testament it's consistent with everything else in the New Testament and we always say it's a continuation of the Old Testament. you know it's not like two parts, but it's a continuation yeah. where God is uh, fulfilling His will, his vision and, and in this part in the second part of the New Testament, this cup, this time, is a, a cup of satisfying the wrath of God as, as you know, we read in Ephesians, We're the object of God's wrath. Mm-hmm. Well, in this part, uh, drinking the cup is a memorial to say that God's wrath is satisfied through his son. And so yeah. it's really interesting. I've never thought about it before. You know, I've read passages. like you said, it's, it's a theme throughout Jeremiah. And we can read it in other parts of the Old Testament, this idea of drinking, being forced to drink the cup, and now we're being asked to drink the cup in obedience and remember the death of His Son.
2: lot of practical application that we can take away from this particular chapter. In fact, uh, we were talking and uh, all three of us have done lessons on the Word of God from this text. So, uh, you know, it's just kind of one of those stories that preaches itself. It's uh, something a lot of people, you know, I guess a lot of our listeners maybe have never heard this, but a lot of people know the image of Jehoiakim cutting that scroll up and throwing it into the fire piece by piece. There are three basic applications that we want to draw from this as it pertains to the Word of God. And the first one is that God has given us words. He has inspired men to speak and to write His will in communication. Verse 2 has God taking the initiative here to tell Jeremiah to take a scroll and And write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until now. And it's not just thoughts that he, you know, it gets confusing when you think about inspiration. You wonder, you know, how does that work? And, you know, I guess if we were not told how it worked, I anyway would think that God just kind of put senses of things or the general information in the minds of the prophets and apostles, and then they sorted that out in their own words. But the the doctrine of inspiration says that God gave each word in the original Hebrew and Greek, of course, and uh, those words are what we read in our Bibles. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Paul's argument in First Corinthians two, verses ten through thirteen. Where he says these are not words taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's important when you talk with your friends about doctrinal differences. We sometimes may be accused of nitpicking with the text. You know, you're putting too much emphasis on that one little word. But, you know, Jesus did that when he was debating the Sadducees in Matthew 22. You know, he they they claimed that. The Torah, the first five books of Moses, did not teach the resurrection. And he pointed out from Exodus 3, 6 that at the burning bush, uh, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he's the God of living, not the God of the dead. He mm-hmm. based that whole argument on the tense of a little two-letter verb. Yeah, And uh, Jesus used the Bible that way. Paul used the Bible that way. We need to treat the Bible with that same respect that every word that is in here is inspired or breathed out by God. And uh, so that that's the first thing that you see here. Any, I'll just keep going. You guys break in if you have anything to add. The, the second thing is that the, these words are written. You know, this is one of the... A lot of times in the Old Testament... When you see God communicating, it's in these fascinating ways that we long for. We think we would rather have Balaam's donkey.
0: Object lessons we talked about a few weeks ago. Yeah,
2: the object lessons. um, You know, angels visiting people and speaking, or just, you know, direct communication from heaven. But here you have it, you know, communicated much in the same way that we get it. Jehoiakim got it the same way we get it on a scroll, Mm -hmm. you know, written down in ink. The only time ink appears in in the Bible or in the Old Testament right here and um you know I wanted to talk a little bit in the application about the benefits of the written word over these other forms of communication uh, don't you don't you think that people often wish that you know it was still angels delivering the messages and donkeys oh, yeah. and you know visions and and of course you have people who claim they've had visions and you know, they put significance to dreams that maybe they shouldn't put significance to. Yeah. Um what I think that w- there is a reason why God has limited his communication to the written word most of the time, even during biblical times, most of the time it was written. Mm-hmm. Um Geisler and Nix have this textbook that I don't Barton, you probably used it in school, general introduction to the Bible. Mm-hmm i got it on my bookcase here behind me. It's a big old thick book, but they talk a lot about inspiration. And they give three reasons why God chose to reveal himself through a written word. The first reason is precision. I mean, it can be delivered exactly through the written word. Um, And, you know, you think about how writing sharpens your thinking. I was talking to one of our deacons yesterday about a problem that we were having, and he said, "He said, uh, I'm going to I'm going to try to put this down to writing to try to really sharpen my thinking on this." And there's a lot of truth to that. Sometimes you write stuff down not to deliver to anybody or show to anybody, but just to get it precise, you know. And right. there's there's a lot of precision in that. The second reason they gave was propagation. I mean, try. Try um, passing a message around by word of mouth. What's what's that game that you, we played when we were kids where you get a line and you whisper something into everybody's ear by the time it gets to the end of the line? It's totally different.
0: Well, just try making an announcement for something.
2: Oh. <laughs> and try
0: yeah. just making an announcement and not writing it down and putting it on Facebook and Twitter and email and website and every other possible form you could write it down.
2: That's I mean, a great example, announcements, because yeah. I would much rather have an announcement in writing than have to hear it and remember it. Right. I mean, remembering the stuff, which is the third point, I'll just rush to the third one, preservation. You can't remember oral communication. Not mm-hmm. When it's this important, when it has eternal consequences, you want it in writing. Yeah. And, you know, it's just... Try to, try to, you know, remember something that somebody said to you, you can't do it. But if they had a letter, you could copy it word for word and pass it on to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So there are some very good reasons why God chose to give us a written medium versus, you know, the visions and the angels and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, and there are a lot of other things, you know. I was thinking, what if everybody... Was directed individually by an angel. What would what would life be like on Earth when you Much know, different. <laughs> there'd be twice as many people here. Well, not only I mean, that. Imagine fourteen billion people.
1: Imagine trying to understand God's will in any other way other than the written word. You know, one of the advantages of the written word is we have access to it all the time. Yeah these other scenarios, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be the case. Oh, yeah, but that's right. Any moment of the day, I can pick this up and I can understand more God's will. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about one of the criticisms of the written word, and that's, you know, people not being able to read. But somehow for thousands of years, and like you said, even the law of Moses, you know, this what we have today is not the first time or the first era where God's word was, was there to, um, God's written word was there to, um, guide the people, but it's more or less always been that way ever since the law of Moses, you know, but even, even then, even throughout, I imagine the literacy rate was really low or, or even throughout different languages and being it. It being translated in, in hundreds of languages and so forth, the dark ages, throughout all of this, God's word, God's written word, has still been very effective and very influential, and the best and the only way that people can understand God's will. And yeah. so, God, in God's it. wisdom, it still is able to um, um, reveal itself to us.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. And I, you know, were saying all that, and I, I got thinking. I don't know that this really has to do with our point, but I wondered how many people have learned to read just so they could learn read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the Bible has probably brought the literacy rate way up. Um, how many people have learned a language from the Bible? And um, you know, it's it's just. Uh, How many people have learned a foreign language so that they could read the Bible? Like Greek, you know, or Hebrew.
1: How many people uh, have never read the Bible, but have listened to it being read their whole life? Yeah. Maybe they couldn't read, but, you know, I was thinking about that. And and sermons, that's why sermons are so important, because in some parts of the world, people can't read, but they can hear the Word of God being preached. Podcasts. Podcasts, like this one. (laughs) Probably the most popular avenue.
0: That is, yeah.
2: that is our mission at the 66, oh, yeah. at the offices of the, the 66. <laughs> yeah,
0: all of the offices. Um, I do think, you know, Bart, what you just mentioned about hearing is very important because, you know, as Peter and Paul were going around, you know, certainly in the early part of Paul's ministry, all these letters weren't floating around just yet. Uh, and, of course, once they were, you know, we have evidence uh, from... Philippians or Ephesians. I think it's Ephesians. Uh, it's Colossians. Share, oh, it's Colossians. Okay. You know, it's one of those. Um, where they share the letters around between the churches. Um, but other than that, all I had to go on was the, you know, what these ministers were saying, what they were telling them in person. And I think there's, you know, I don't really think the, if you can't read, it's a, it makes this a problem. Because mm-hmm. uh, there are people that, that can and that can share and um, and that brings me to unless do you have I another. Mean, oh, just okay. one more thing. It's just okay.
2: it, for anybody who wants to go back to needing miracles or needing you know different forms of communication than the written word, read First uh, Corinthians twelve through fourteen first, because that yeah. was that time period you were talking about before the written word, when they needed prophets and tongue speakers and all of this. Mm-hmm. and there were a lot of problems of jealousy and division uh not caused by god but because of the gifts in the church that revealed and confirmed the word of god in the absence of the written word uh people were being je- they were jealous of one another the people who could work miracles were asserting themselves over the ones who couldn't work miracles yeah and it was just a you know it was it was a difficult challenging time those problems, you know, there are other problems, of course, but those problems don't exist in yeah. the church where the Word is, you know, the sole guide.
0: Um, yeah, we we get to miss out on a a whole uh, collection of problems that yeah. we don't want to have. Of course, you know,
2: we're pretty good at replacing them with others. Yeah, so. yeah we've
0: got plenty of good problems now. But I think there's one thing I want to add on to this. You know, we're talking about... Um, the taking the word seriously, and Drew, you already mentioned, you know, Jesus talking about um, just that one word to prove that God is the God of the living and saying that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, you know, I think it requires us to take the word of God very seriously, and that is something in stark contrast to what Jehoiakin did here in this passage. You know, he's sitting, and the most striking thing about this whole story to me is that. You know, you see a huge contrast between this king and his father Josiah, because uh, Josiah, when he reads the book of the law, you know he, he's tearing his clothes. He's you know he's we got to fix this. We gotta we gotta bring in some reform, yeah. air reform. He hears the word and he's so, you know, I guess he's just so wrapped up in being king and you know the work, the earthly wealth and power that he has. He couldn't care any less about what is being read to him. Because he's just sitting, you know, almost surprised that he is even taking the time to do what he is doing. Because of the blatant disregard he shows for the word of God, he's just sitting there, and it says, uh, neither him or any of the people with him, you know, none of them cared. None of them tore their clothes. Um, yeah. They just... There's a contrast
2: there. between these officials, yeah. which, which are really intriguing me, this read-through of Jeremiah. I've never... Read through Jeremiah. even noticed these people before, but mm-hmm. you know, I, who are they? They're officials. They're not the king's servants. But you had the king's servants. You know, there's a contrast between the officials who were afraid, and there was, And I mean, I think this was intentional by the writer. The king and his servants were not afraid. You know, mm-hmm. it's just no, no, no respect. No respect. No. Yeah.
0: How do you think that this plays into? reading Scripture today? Well, I mean, obviously we don't have... And I'm thinking of just sitting in church even or in a Bible class even. Not, you know, reading amongst people that don't believe. But how do you... You know, when we read the Word today, is there... What kind of level of respect do you expect or do you think people should have when they read the Word today? I mean, obviously I think we would all agree that we shouldn't be... You know, we all feel... We would all feel very... Odd, uh, chopping up a Bible. Or, you know, if somebody, yeah. I know someone, I'm sure you've heard of this too. People for uh, an illustration in a sermon, they'll say, "Have you read this book?" No, and they'll just rip it out of their Bible. Yeah, or they'll say uh,
2: they'll they'll look at, uh, you know, uh, they'll read a controversial passage. Well, I don't like that one. To rip it out and tear it up, and throw it yeah. on the ground as we an illustration like that. that we shouldn't do that. You know. Yeah. Um, and some people, some people, um, won't even mark in their Bibles. Mm-hmm. They have such reverence, but I think that's misplaced reverence. It's reverence in the page mm-hmm. and the the ink instead of the the living word. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good way to put it. Is the living word? Mm-hmm. That's that's what um, you know is really important. And I guess that leads to my third point here. As we're going through this, you know, to remind everybody, we've gone off on we chase some bunny trails here. But I said first, God has given us words. Secondly, these words are written. That's what we've been talking about for a long time. Finally, the words are eternal. Um, at the end of the story, and I love I love how this works out. At the end of the story, um, you know, Jehoiakim has burned the scroll up. And God told, tells Jeremiah, write another one. And Jeremiah writes it and adds more words to it. So, you know, there's just no getting around it. It's the eternal word of God. And uh, it's not going to be destroyed by man, no matter how hard they try. And, you know, in the dark ages of human history, the word was was kept from the people. You know, the illiteracy rates were high. Right. The only copy of the Word of God people get their hands on was in Latin, which most people didn't speak except for the church and so you had to rely upon the priest to know what the Word said, and maybe they were telling you the truth, and maybe they weren't and maybe they knew it. I wish I had the statistics before me, but there was uh, some some study done some inquiries or something done among priests during the medieval ages medieval ages. I'm learning how to say that word with Barton here this week. Uh, he's been helping me with that. Uh, but the they the priests themselves didn't know simple Bible questions. You know the kind of stuff we do with our kids at VBS. And um, you know through all of that, the word has survived. And now you know we have it translated in every language. It's the bestseller on in the world, you know, it's just, you can't destroy it. The psalmist said, your word is settled in the heavens. You know, it's not an earthly thing, so there's no way you can get rid of it. It has the quality of a seed, you know, as Jesus said in the parable of the sower, so that it can be buried for years and years and years, hidden, but when it's planted in fertile soil, in a receptive human heart, it's going to germinate, sprout. And grow a Christian mm-hmm. is what it's going to do,
0: yeah, and I think some of that stuff you're mentioning is a great evidence for the fact that it is from God, you know, I think the fact that it survived the medieval ages, yeah, the medieval however mm-hmm. it's I don't know if we're said debating medieval, about medieval. It medieval 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 um, medieval medieval mm-hmm. well however it's pronounced the fact that it survived that I mean because you think about some of the known leadership that was corrupt and some of the things that they were involved in. And somehow, you know, they're the only ones that could read the word. And somehow it survived through all of that. You know, mm-hmm. to where the people in control of it were the ones who, you know, were not necessarily interested in preserving it. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to me, it's very surprising. You know, I can't believe it made it through that. Mm-hmm.
2: It kind of makes our debates not to minimalize them, minimize them, but it kind of makes our debates over translations silly. You know, yeah. maybe I should let's erase it. No, <laughs> I, I mean, really, we we have so much to be thankful for, and yeah, but I just as much as anybody else believe in getting a good translation of the Bible since we yeah. have them available. Yeah, I think... But to make my life's work to, say, to push
0: one translation over another... Right, that's and, what I was about is, to say. you know... If you want to push one translation over another you better be pushing, like, the original text over another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because that... People will argue for a certain translation and be like, this is the original. This <laughs> right. is the original. And I remember in college we had a guy that was He was very abrasive and angry for anybody that used anything but his particular translation of the Bible. No matter, you know, that excluded several that are very old and have been around for a long time. Well, I thought maybe
2: he was defending the old one. Well, he was defending one
0: of the old ones. But, like, he was, uh, you know, everybody knows what I'm talking about. He was talking about the KJV. But he's also leaving out the American Standard or translations, like, very literal translations, like Young's Literal, that are actually more... You know, close to the original itself, um, and I was—he brought that up to me one time because I told him, you know, or I'd preached out of a, my ESV and he had a problem with it and says something about it. And I said, he said, "This is the original," you know, King James is original as it gets. I said, "No, no, oh, it's not." I said, "If you're going to argue yeah. for the original, you need to have the autograph in front of me. The not even the manuscript. Give, mm-hmm. bring me the autographs of the original copies." And then you can argue to me that I can't use anything else. But, you know, it's just, yeah. like you said, I think we can get caught up too much in some of those things. Uh, but, I, you know, we can still have a respect for the word. We're not saying, you know, it's we need of, to go out and get a paraphrase like the message or something. Right, yeah.
2: Yeah, we've got to balance this and make sure everybody knows what we're talking about. I guess it's kind of like we say this uh, a lot of times, that's a first world problem. You know, like somebody complaining, my my Wi-Fi is only 1.5 megabyte (laughs) download. You know, it's like there are people on the other side of the world that don't know if they're going to have breakfast Mm -hmm. or lunch or supper. Mm. Or if they're going to survive malaria and we're complaining about Wi-Fi. That's kind of like comparing what we've got today with the Dark Ages We have all these Bible translations, and so we have the luxury of arguing which one is the best English translation. We ought to be thankful that we can have that debate. I guess that's the best way to put it is. I'm grateful that we can debate which is the best English translation. Mm -hmm. Right. Because a lot of people only have one translation, or they have no translation. Mm -hmm. Or in the past, I think, today. You can get your hands on just about any language. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I had another thought. I don't know yeah. how much time or where we, got, we are. We got time. Let's do it. But I, I had another thought. You got a minute? Real quick. Um, I was thinking about um, God's eternal word, like you said earlier. You know this third point of God's eternal word, and thinking about one of the aspects of that is God's judgment, and and the power of the written word is God's judgment. I was thinking earlier about um, Jesus in his prayer in John seventeen. He said in verse twenty, "They will believe in in me." Those after the apostles through their word, you know yeah. that's so powerful if you think about that. And then uh, in, in Matthew Jesus says, uh, they, uh, it's not the Father nor nor I who will judge, but rather the word that I speak is what mm-hmm. will judge you on the final day. You know often we think of the Lord as the final judge, but really Jesus in that passage says it's the word. You think about how eternal that is and how powerful God's word is. And I was thinking about Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah, um, it wasn't God that was really, obviously God is God and he could do that, but um, who was really the judge, nor was it Jeremiah. He was certainly just the messenger, but it was the message that Jeremiah was giving them that was going to judge them. Right. And I think... When they went into captivity later on with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and all that, I think they were thinking back on the words of Jeremiah and how powerful that was. And Um, I think, isn't it
2: interesting how, and we don't have time to do this, I was (coughs) going to do it and I forgot to, but how the phrase, the word of the Lord, and the phrase, the words of Jeremiah, are used Mm -hmm. interchangeably in this text. Yeah, Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot there to chew on. Um, But it was because of how truthful Jeremiah was with it. Mm. Yeah, So that's all the time we've got. Now, I do want to say this before we close the podcast out this week. We could use your help. If you will go to iTunes and leave a review or even just a rating, it would help us. And several of you have done that over the last couple of weeks, and we're thankful to you. I have been trying to find the simplest way to do it, and here's the problem. There's no simple way to leave a review. I don't know what the deal Thanks is Apple. with this. Yeah, Apple has made this as difficult as possible. Here's the simplest way that I know how is you take your mobile device, and you don't go to your podcasts where you've subscribed, but you go over to the search section, and you search for the 66 podcast. And you, because we don't have many reviews, you'll have to scroll through a bunch of junk to get down to us. You click us, and then from that screen, you can leave a review through your mobile device. Just a few words, and you can cut us down and tell us how terrible we are. But now, Do you know if that works on Android devices? Uh, I, did, I don't think it does. I, think. I, I, don't, I don't know. Try it out and see. Um, but if you'll do that for us, it'll help us in our standings. Um, and we, as always, appreciate you listening. And send us some feedback or follow us on Twitter, The66Podcast. Check us out online at the66.net. Thanks, Barton, for getting up early and joining us this morning. Thanks for the invite. We should have, have had a an
0: applause track ready to yeah. go. Yeah, we, we'll start, Next we, you know,
2: when we get a producer, we'll start adding all that stuff
1: in. <laughs> yeah. but, uh,
2: until, until then, we'll just make do with what we've got. But, uh, you know, keep with us. We're making our way through this book. And uh, next week we'll have more from Jeremiah.